This morning, uh, I would like us all to consider a simple question that has a really hard answer sometimes. Um, It's a question that I've been thinking uh, through myself these last couple months, and the question is, how are you doing? Really? Uh, How are you doing really? And let let me be a little bit more specific. So as I take stock of the year that was 2020, everybody remember that year? Um, living through a global pandemic, I can honestly and, and truthfully tell you, um, it was rough. It was pretty rough. Uh, it's, it started out as, as a pretty novel experience. If you guys remember, I'm sure some of your guys' experience was the same way that um, we, we thought, hey, now we can talk to our family over Zoom. That'll be cool. And hey, we, we have to quarantine. Um, that'll be like a staycation. That'll be cool. And then, hey, we get to work from home. Nice, you know? Well, that quickly turned, didn't it? Um, For Leslie and I, that turned into Christmas Eve. And we're home by ourselves because we're sick. And we didn't want to expose our family. And so Zoom Christmas it is. I pray I never have to do that again. Um, The staycation turned into um, days on end with both of us on the couch because we had a, one of us had a fever that took us to the ER, and I know some of you guys had worse experiences than that. And for me, the, the joy of working from home quickly turned into days on days in a basement in front of a computer. You can imagine how that went for me. Um, but, you know, Leslie, she was deemed essential, so she was going to the office every day. And so through it all, though, me being like the eternal optimist, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. I'm, I'm getting by. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm doing all right. And then I, I don't know when, but I realized at some point that maybe I wasn't doing okay. Uh, if I could label it, we, we really started to feel the effects of being isolated. Now, now for clarity, I mean, we weren't physically isolated for a year. I mean, we, we did get to see people, but this is what we realized. A lot of those times that we would gather with friends and family, it just wasn't the same it wasn't the same as before COVID because normally what would happen is we'd get together with friends and family and, and we'd catch up. You know, how's your family? How's your life? How's your dog? What are you watching on Netflix? All that kind of stuff. And those conversations weren't happening anymore. Now the conversations were about masks and about elections and about vaccines. And, you know, I suppose there, there's a time and place for all that. But if that's your sole diet of conversation then it's, it's like eating Doritos for every meal. You just don't feel good afterwards, and you have all the dust on your hands, and that's no good. And, and truthfully, I've, I've seen some of those tendencies in our culture as a whole. I mean, here in Montana, and really even the United States, but especially Montana, I'd say we're a strong bunch. We are an independent bunch. Um, we kind of have this vibe of like, yeah, we can do it. We can figure it out. We can get by. We can handle it. Even so much so that when we see God say in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, when he says of over creation, he says when it's not good for man to be alone, I actually kind of wonder if there's part of our culture here in the West that says, I don't know. I don't know about that. Um, I mean, I've been isolated for a year and I think I'm doing okay. And, and maybe what I wonder is if that statement even goes further. If that statement goes to, I don't know that I need community like I thought I did. I've been isolated for a year, and I think we're doing okay on our own. To that, I want to ask us a question this morning. Are you? 
are you doing okay on your own? See, I, I did some research on this topic, and I wanted to research it from a, of a, from a science and a clinical perspective. And you guys, I found so much data out on the internet. Not all of it's true. Let me tell you that. Big surprise there. The data that I found that is true, that is backed up by science, goes on to say that perhaps we're not doing as well as we thought we were. And I'm not going to bore you with the whole data set that I found, but I want to show you a chart that's significant. This chart is from the, the CDC. It was published on the U.S. National Library of Medicine site. And what this shows us, it's, it's the average share of adults reporting symptoms of anxiety disorder and or depressive dis- disorder. Now, this shows us on the left, that's from January to June of 2019. On the right, that's January of 2021. So in January last year, 11% of adults would say, yeah, I, I experienced some sort of anxiety, depressive disorder. On the right, January 2021, 41%. So round numbers in, from 2019 to COVID, we went from 10% to 40%. And kind of the thesis statement, the article ends with this. The most common psychological disorders reported are anxiety and panic, obsessive compulsive symptoms, insomnia, digestive problems, as well as depressive symptoms and post-traumatic stress. These are not only a direct consequence of the pandemic, but also largely driven by, listen to this, the effects of prolonged social isolation. That is, the objective lack of interactions with others. So looking at this science, looking at this data, my question has become, where do we go from here? Because pan- the, the pandemic hopefully is in the rearview mirror a little bit. Our numbers are coming down, which is awesome. But what does community look like after COVID? I mean, we've just come out of this year that we're, we're used to being isolated. And is there any wisdom or are there any examples in the Bible that we can get? And as you can imagine, the Bible's full of this counsel, especially in the New Testament. If you look at just the subject of community in the New, Te- New Testament, full of stories full of illustrations about unifi- uh, the unified believers community. But what I want to do this morning is I want to actually go in the Old Testament. I want to look at a, a familiar story that a lot of you probably know, and I want to approach it from the lens of community. So let me, let me show you something. Does anybody know what this is? Yeah, I, I think I heard it. This is a juniper tree. And occasionally, it's referred to in the Bible as a broom tree. I want to show you a moment from the life of one of our Bible heroes, and quite possibly, it's, it's this guy's darkest day. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down underneath a solitary broom tree, and he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I'm no better than my ancestors who have already died. So the man in this story, his name is Elijah. And if you don't know his story, he was a prophet. And prior to this moment, he saw literal miracles in his life. But now he's he's sitting underneath this sad tree and asking God to literally kill him. So what happened to this guy? Well, to give you perspective on this guy's life, we have to rewind the tape. So Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament, like I said. And there's no mention of him until 1 Kings 17, when there's a problem in the government. See, what was happening in in Elijah's day, there was a king, and the king's name was Ahab. Well, Ahab was married to a gal who was a peach of a human being named Jezebel. Well, Jezebel 
was such a strong supporter of Baal. Baal was uh, the god of, of the storm, the rain, and fertility. So Baal was that god, and Jezebel was such a strong supporter of the prophets of Baal that out of the royal treasury, she was supporting 450 prophets of Baal. So if that wasn't bad enough, out of the royal treasury also, she was supporting 400 prophets of the goddess Asherah. If that wasn't bad enough, if that wasn't bad enough using all this money to support all these foreign gods' prophets, she was killing God's prophets. And so when word about this was getting around, the rest of the prophets, of God's prophets that were actually living, they went into hiding. The Bible says there was about a hundred of them that went into hiding. And so consequently, the Israelites, God's people, they were, they were coerced into following Baal, which they had to know it was not good news. And all of a sudden, Elijah bursts on the scene. We, we haven't heard anything about this guy. First words out of Elijah's mouth was this, right to King Ahab. As the Lord, designation, the God of Israel lives, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Bam. <laughs> so needless to say, that didn't make old Jezzy too happy, as you can imagine, right? So just as Elijah said, he says, it's not raining until I say it's raining. So for three years, it didn't rain. This is a culture that is dependent upon rain, and it didn't rain for three years. So you might think, okay, well, that's no big deal. He just gives this word, and then he goes off to his day job. No, 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 not like that. doesn't have a day job. What happened is for three years, Elijah was hunted by Ahab and Jezebel. For three years, he was in hiding. The Bible talks about all this stuff he went through. Well, then, at this point, Elijah says, it's enough. It's time for a confrontation. Enough is enough. So he says, to, uh, he says to Ahab, he says, I'm going to issue an open challenge. And I want your 450 prophets of Baal and your 400, and 400 prophets of Asherah, I want you guys all to meet me on Mount Carmel. Now, Mount Carmel is interesting because previously in the Old Testament, there used to be an altar that was built for God there. And now it's been wrecked. It's been in ruins, which is pretty symbolic of the faith uh, state at that point. So Elijah says, 850 to one, meet me there and we'll see what's what. And so uh, the challenge was this. He says, this is what we're going to do. Each team, 851, each team is going to get a bull and we're going to see whose God can light that bull on fire and burn up the offering. Whoever gets the fire wins. So we're going to pick this up in first Kings 1825, because this is such a great story. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there's so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they, the prophets, called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar that they had made. At noon, here comes sarcastic Elijah. Elijah begins to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or he's busy or he's traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and he must be awakened. Yeah, that's it. So they shouted louder and then they slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. That's gross. So midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying. So now they're prophesying, trying to get something going until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered and no one paid attention. This has gone on all day and they're a bloody mess. Then Elijah said to the people, come here to me. They came to him. Look at this. He repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down 
Excellent symbolism. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two seahs of seed. So then he took the wood, he ranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, laid it on the wood. And then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Um, So I'm not a survival guy, but if you want to know how to build a fire in the wilderness, this is not how to do it. This is not a good idea. He took four jars of water. Oh, verse 34, do it again, he said. And they did it again. We're up to eight jars of water. Do it a third time. We're up to 12 jars of water. He ordered and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. So now it comes game time. 36, at the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, specifying which Lord, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. That is super hot fire. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate, and they cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley, and slaughtered there. So here comes, this is my favorite line in the whole story. If, if this ever gets made into a movie, number one, I want to be in it. Number two, this is my favorite line. Elijah says to Ahab, go eat and drink, for there's the sound of a heavy rain. Isn't that thought the coolest line? The English Standard Version says, go eat and drink, for a storm's coming. He's just like digging it into Ahab. It wasn't big, you know, the fire did the whole thing. He's just like, I think I, I, think I smell rain, oh Ahab. So after three years, it rained. After three years, it rained that day. So you can imagine, the Bible doesn't say how Ahab felt about all this. It says what Ahab did. Ahab goes home and tells old Jezzy what happened, and she is furious. She then writes, uh, she delivers a message to Elijah and says this, says, may the gods also kill me if by this time tomorrow I have failed to take your life like those whom you have killed. You guys, I don't know how you grew up, but in grade school, I had a bully, and he he did this. He's like, you know, at 3.30, we're going to meet after school. He said that to me at 9 o'clock. Guess what I thought about all day? That dude. Same thing here, except Jezebel saying, if you're not dead this time tomorrow, I'm dead. And that is how Elijah got here. That had to be so hard on the guy, you guys. Think about this. He's been running. He's been in hiding for three years. And then he has this epic moment where God answers him. And God delivers this miracle in this fire. And he doesn't even have time to celebrate in it. Now old Jezebel's saying, if you're not dead this time tomorrow, I'm dead. And that's how he arrived under the broom tree. Tired, exhausted, and depleted of hope, he says, God, take my life. I'm done. This morning, I want to ask you, have you ever been in that spot? Have you ever been metaphorically under a broom tree where maybe things didn't go your way for a long time? 
Maybe you were praying to God, asking God for something, and it wasn't the answer you got. And you're just sitting there, depleted of hope, just saying, I'm done. This is what Elijah had to go through. Now, what do you suppose that God did? Because God didn't leave him under the broom tree. God's answer to Elijah was giving Elijah something that he desperately needed. And here's the thing. The same thing that Elijah needed all those years ago is the same thing that we need today. God gave Elijah two new orders. He said this. He said, I want you to go anoint two new kings and I want you to find this other guy named Elisha and I want you to anoint him as the prophet because here's what God was doing. God was giving Elijah community. He said, there's a problem in the government. There's a problem in the structure of the land. I'm going to send you two new kings to anoint, set those people in to correct that problem. But also there's a problem in Elijah. He's been doing all of this by himself. Day in, day out, he's been doing all of this by himself. And God is saying, okay, I'm going to give you somebody else. I'm going to give you somebody that you can walk hand in hand with for this good season. And then eventually he's going to replace you. But you're going to walk hand in hand, in tandem with one another. God gave Elijah community. Of all the things he could have done to Elijah back then, all the things he could have done, he says, I'm going to put people around you to help you through this. We see in the, in the Old Testament, and really there's a, there's a reference in the New Testament as well, but one of God's names is El-Rahi. And that's translated as the God who sees And I want to tell you something this morning, very sincerely. God sees you. God sees you, without a doubt. He sees you, and more importantly, he cares for you like nobody else does. When nobody else knows, perhaps, that you're underneath that broom tree, God sees you. And more importantly, he says, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to give you a future and a hope. So this morning, if if you do find yourself underneath that broom tree, I want to tell you that that God sees you in that same compassion we see in Jesus. In Matthew chapter 9, it says, Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd like sheep without a shepherd, of all the wording to use, Jesus uses a very cultural and very relevant analogy. And he says that they're like sheep without a shepherd, which in that day has to be like the pinnacle of hopelessness. Perhaps maybe that's why Jesus, in his last orders to his disciples, he commissioned them to do something about that. He says, therefore, go and make disciples, which means learner. Therefore, go and make the church. Start the church. Was never a building. The church has never been a building, right? It's always been a group of people. Jesus is saying, therefore, go and create community because the world needs it. I'm sending you to fix an issue that I see. Go and create community. So if, if we bring this into today, then, here at Mount Helena, um, if, if everybody showed up on the same Sunday in the same service, we'd have, well, we need a lot more chairs. Uh, we'd have about four to 500 people in this room. That's a crowd, you guys. That is a crowd of people. So my question for us this morning then is, what's the difference between a crowd and a community? What's the difference between a crowd 
in a community? And I think there's lots of different answers, but one of the foundational differences, I would say, the difference between a crowd and community is you. One of the big differences between a crowd and community is you and is your perspective. Because if you take a crowd, if you're on the outside of that crowd, you see a crowd, don't you? But if you're on the inside in a smaller group, you see what? Community. Nothing changed about that group of people except your perspective and your ownership and what you have invested in that group. When you don't have anything invested, it's a crowd. But when you have investment, when you're on the inside, it's community. So then the choice and, or the question becomes, how will you interact with the crowd to make it a community? That becomes the question. And here's a really honest question. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? And you probably expect me to say this, but I will say it anyway, without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah, it's worth it. Without a doubt. Um, my clearest broom tree moment, if you will, was in 2007. Uh, 2007 was, was a really, really hard year for Leslie and I. Uh, we lived in Michigan for two years. Uh, we went there. The plan was we were going to intern at a sister church for six months, and well, six months turned into a year. And then at the end of that year, um, the pastor asked if we would consider moving to Michigan permanently. And so I'm just making a very long story short. Uh, we, we did. We moved to Michigan. And at that time, we were, you know, ordained, and I was set in as a, as a pastor on staff there. Well, and then in, in 2007, in January of 2007, uh, my mom passed away. And then in May, we had a near church split that was super ugly. And then in September, my dad passed away. And so super, super hard year. And I remember my birthday, um, December 13th, if any of you guys want to write that down, uh, a couple months later. And I remember dreading my birthday because uh, my parents would always call me on my birthday. And I was just, I was just dreading the day. So uh, Leslie and I, we, we decided we were going to go out to dinner together. And we were getting ready to go out to dinner. And I remember this so clearly. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. And um, a man that I consider to be like another father, he was the pastor of the church that time, he called me. And this is so uncharacteristic of him. He says, I know you guys are about to go out to dinner. Could we impose? Could we take you to dinner and celebrate with you? And you guys, in that moment, I was wrecked. I was completely wrecked. I was in tears. That wouldn't have happened with a crowd. That happens because of community. So I can say, you guys, when you ask me if community is worth it, absolutely. Absolutely it is. But I'm going to give you a disclaimer. Sometimes it's really hard. Sometimes community is really hard because sometimes we disagree. And sometimes there's friction. And I want to tell you, I wouldn't have it any other way. Because just like a, a muscle needs resistance to build, our faith in our community is the same way. If, if you gave me an offer and said, hey, um, why don't you be part of this community and everybody will agree with you 100% of the time, I'm out. I'm done. There's no way I want that because it's, it's just not right. We are meant to live in community and part of that community is resisting one another. Part of that is like 
you know, in marriage, or it's like, hey, you know, I want to go here. And then some people say, no, I, I want to go here to eat. And, you know, some people who are really messed up say, I want to go to Taco Bell. And I, I don't understand that at all. Those people are wrong. I will just tell you. <laughs> he meant amen. That's what he meant. But that's the power of community, right? Resisting, resisting one another because that is how we grow. So it starts with a choice. When you're looking at the crowd and you want to engage the crowd, that's the choice you have to make. Am I going to be vulnerable? Am I going to risk something and engage the community? So I wanted this morning, I wanted to give you a few super practical ways to engage the crowd. To engage the crowd and turn it into a community. Super simple, super practical. The first one is our Sunday service. And when I mean that, I do not mean this part. It's really hard to build community when somebody's talking at you with a microphone. But here's a little tip for our Sunday services. If you want to build community, before and after the service. They are prime community times. So if you like the first service, I'm, this, is, this is secret information, don't tell anybody. If you like the first service, stay a little bit afterwards because people hang out and talk after that. If you like the second service, what do you do, right? Because you're here. Come a little bit before. So we have plenty of time. We've got like a 45-minute gap in between those two services. Come a little bit before. There's always people here. We're always hanging out. And like I told the first service, there's nothing formal about it. There's no PowerPoint. We're not going to ask you to buy a condo, anything like that. It's just hanging out. Our Sunday services are some of the best time to do that. And number two, your calendar. So in my world, if it's not on the calendar, it doesn't happen. So what I would say to you, here's a super practical tip. However you keep track of your day, pencil something in. And you're, you're not saying, I'm going to go get coffee with Jason. You're not saying that. You're making a spot in your calendar and label it community or whatever because you're building a structure. And then what you can do is you have this time in your calendar and you can call then somebody and say, hey, uh, do you want to go grab lunch? Do you want to help me mow my lawn? That's a good idea right there. Uh, do you want to do something? Because you already have that time penciled out. It's like the old adage, like, you show me your checkbook, I'll show you your priorities. Calendar's the same way. If you show me your calendar, I'll show you what's important to you in your life. So put the time in your calendar ahead of time that you have that. And number three, small groups. So we're going to go into a, a small group system in the fall, and, and we're looking for leaders. And so if you want to you wanna start a, a Bible study, you want to start a, a book study, you want to start a hiking group, whatever it is, talk to us about starting a small group. Because the way we do it is we gather all those leaders, and then we publish a menu and then you can sign up for whatever small group you want to be part of. And that is such a great way to get to know people here is through our small groups. Do you want number four? This is bonus. Do you want a number four? A little bonus? Okay. If you're listening to this message completely bored out of your mind because you're like, oh, you know, I've, yeah, this, this is boring. It's one of two things. Either A, you're on Facebook or solitaire and I say, stop it. Or number two, you're in community. And this is all review to you. If that's number two, I'm talking to you right now. If you find yourself in community and this is really boring, then I have homework for you. It's your job to reach out. It's your job to reach out and maybe find somebody that may or may not be involved in community and say, hey, you want to you go grab coffee? You want to go to the, you know, the target range and, and fire off some rounds? Whatever it is, it's your job then to engage the community. It's your job to engage the crowd. Four just super simple ways. You guys, I just want to tell you, um, I don't want to under, I don't want to, 
I don't want to de-emphasize the year we've had. We've had a heck of a year, haven't we? If you are one this morning that finds yourself sitting underneath a broom tree and just wondering if God sees you, he does. Absolutely, he does. And I would say to you that part of God's answer to you, part of the answer is community. Because when he said in the beginning that God, that it's not good for man to be alone, he meant it. We are meant to live in community. The choice that you have this morning is, is community important to you? That's the question you have to answer. And then the second question is, will you risk something? Because there is a risk. There is a risk engaging a crowd and turning it into a community. I'm not going to lie to you. But here's what I'll tell you. I've been part of a men's group for the last 12 years. We've met every single week. And I am a better human being because of those men. I am a better leader. I am a better husband. I'm a better human because of those men. And I had to risk something. And I had to get up really early, which I don't really, yeah. But I'm a better human being because of those men. And so that's the, that's the question you have your, to answer this morning. Will you risk something to engage the crowd for a shot at community? Let me pray for you this morning. God, I I thank you so much, Father, that when we talk about community, we're talking about the church. And I thank you that the church was your idea and that you sent your son to establish the church. God, I just ask ask a blessing upon all of us here, Father, that we would find courage to engage the crowd, that we would find courage to reach out, Lord, because you've told us it's not good for us to be alone, and we believe it. So God, I ask that as we go, that we be salt and light to a world that desperately needs it, Father, and that we would just be really good at reaching out and establishing community in our city. In Jesus' name, amen.